Thank you, Kevin, for shepherding our hearts. Um, I was blessed last night, I guess, as a group of men gathered to get Matt ready for marriage. And uh, part of that tradition is for the men to share pearls of wisdom on marriage. And so I was personally edified and encouraged by Randall and David Sue and Will Wu and their words of wisdom in marriage. So if you have any marriage problems today, and if you have need of any marital advice, these men have good counsel because it comes from the Lord. So seek them out and don't be robbed of that opportunity. Well, we're back on our theme of Advent and Christmas, and our focus this morning is the spirit of Christmas. And when we were last together and I was last in the pulpit a few weeks ago, I noted I typically try and listen to my sermons the day after to make sure I haven't said anything egregious. We're men, we're not God. And I noticed that the length of the sermon was only 33 minutes. And I'm not charismatic, but I do believe sometimes that God works in miraculous and amazing ways. But I also felt convicted that I robbed you. And so this morning, I'm going to make up for it and give you a little bit extra, especially since the children are not here. If you have your Bibles, we'll get a two-for-one double feature this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to start in Isaiah, and then we're going to go back to the text that we went through before, Galatians 4, focusing on the end. And our focus this morning is on the spirit of Christmas. Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Isaiah and written for us. These God-breathed words that were written down for us by the prophet Isaiah. They were written around 700 years or so before the birth of Christ. And they were spoken and then written during politically and spiritually very dark times in the southern kingdom of Judah. And even though the king on the throne, Judah's king, was a direct descendant of King David, King Ahaz, like most of our leaders today, King Ahaz was vain, he was foolish, and he was idolatrous. 
What was worse is he had this legacy of God's love and care. And yet he, along with most Judeans, they were enslaved by the spirit of this world. They were worldly. That's another way of saying worldly. They were enslaved by the spirit of this world. According to Isaiah 7 and 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, as Judah is under the threat of war and invasion, rather than trust in the Lord and his salvation. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he says, Ahaz asked for a sign. You don't need to be afraid. You are of the line of David. You're the people of God. You have a God who loves you and will save you. Ask for a sign. And Ahaz, instead of looking to the Lord, for assurance and confidence and salvation. Instead, Ahaz looks to the world and he looks to the nations around him and he looks for treaties and he looks to the gods of this world for deliverance and salvation. It is blatant. He has no love for the Lord. He has a love for the world. And as you follow the account in Chronicles and Kings, you see he's even willing to go, <clears throat> excuse me, so far as to sacrifice one of his children in fire, a typical pagan practice, in order in desperate times to try and win favor from a pagan god and to bring salvation. And as you can imagine, what follows in Judah is darkness. Now that sounds far away, but in fact, we're living that in America as we speak. And it's so in Isaiah 11, the Lord gives his people a word of hope. They can no longer trust in their king. He gives them a word of hope. But this word of hope is also a call to repentance. And this word of hope is that he alone is the holy God who saves. The salvation of men and the salvation of this world is for a minute and a moment. It's like our Christmas holidays. It feels good and it seems great for a short period of time and then it falls apart. But for the faithful remnant who wait for the Lord, his salvation will come as promised through a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This idea of the stump of Jesse is the Lord is going to come to those Davidic kings who are unfaithful. He's going to cut them off. And that, of course, does play out in the history of Judah. But though they are cut off, God is still the God who keeps his promises. And from that stump, what appears to be dead, a shoot will come. And through this shoot will come a king who is a different kind of king. What will set this king apart from all other kings? Smarter, better, better college, better education. What sets this king apart is the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That idea of rest is that the spirit of the Lord will take up residence, make his home, tabernacle, that this will be like the temple, the place where the Lord draws near his people and covers them with his love and his grace and his truth. The spirit who dwells in him will be the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, what has been lost. 
Another way of saying this is he will be anointed. That idea of anointing, covered with oil, is a symbol of being covered and filled with the Spirit from above, not the Spirit of this world. Another name for that is Messiah, and in Greek, Christos. This is the Spirit, and this is the King who will deliver God's people from the slavery of sin and who will bring them to the righteousness and the peace and the salvation of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we look for these things in this day and age. Our hope, which we'll deal with next week, is not from kings and men of this world. We wait for Christ. But the hope and assurance and encouragement and the good news of Christmas is that in Jesus of Nazareth, this king, this spirit, and this salvation has come and it has begun. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we're celebrating at Christmas. And this morning, as we come back to the God-breathed testimony of the Apostle Paul in Galatians, this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to remind the Galatians. He brings them back to Christmas because they've forgotten where they started and they've forgotten the path that they are on and they have forgotten the greatness of their salvation. Their focus is, what do we need to do to be better Christians? What do we need to do to assure ourselves that, hey, we're in God's good grace. What do we need to do? Let's get the checklist. We need to get circumcised. We need to follow the law. We need to celebrate days and traditions and all of these different things. And the Apostle Paul comes to them and says, you are missing the point. This is not the spirit of Christ. This is not the spirit of Christmas. And our big truth this morning is what the Apostle Paul is trying to remind the Galatian Christians, that the Christmas spirit we need is not the spirit of this world. It's the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of his righteousness. And this is a spirit that God has already given us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why we celebrate. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's go forward to the New Testament, to Galatians 4. And we'll read from verse 3 to 11. Excuse me. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Well, this too 
is the word of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the reasons the Lord spoke these words for the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia is like many Christians in America today and like King Ahaz, they had become seduced by the spirit of this world. They become preoccupied with all the things that they should do and that people told them that they should do to become a better Christian. And brothers and sisters, there are no shortage of blogs and people and books telling you what you need to do to become a good Christian or a better Christian. Do we need to become better Christians? Well, we'll find out. But when we go down that path and that becomes our focus, too often our focus is on ourselves and what we do and how we perform as the assurance of our salvation and our relationship with God, rather than a focus on who Jesus is and what he has done. And the result, Galatians 5 and 6, as you come to the end, as the Galatians became focused on themselves, self-absorbed, what we need to do, what we say, now, what we do and say matters, but when that becomes the priority and what we live by and that becomes our God, we become selfish, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we're living by the flesh, what we can do, not by faith in Christ. And the result, as you come to Galatians 5 and 6, is increasingly this church, they are biting and devouring one another. Strife and immorality are on the rise. They are becoming destructive to themselves and to one another. Why? Because they are trying to live the Christian life by their own merits and accomplishments they are trying to justify themselves. Well, I did this at church. I did this. What did you do? And what's totally been left behind is what saved them in the first place, God's gift of his spirit and his son. Now, if we're honest, brothers and sisters, this frequently can become the spirit that dominates many hearts and homes, especially at Christmas. And we begin with Santa Claus and we begin with Mariah Carey. Some in my household <clears throat> will leave. But we begin with these things. On the other hand, you have Luciano Pavarotti, right? You have them all. But we begin with Santa Claus. We begin with the Christmas cheer. We begin with the Christmas spirit, right? And a flurry of Christmas spirit of shopping for gifts and a tree that looks beautiful and cooking and getting ready for family to come and all the events. And then we end with a spiritual hangover. And predictably, we struggle with discontent and discouragement and sometimes mental and spiritual fatigue at the end. And Christmas can become like a winter pilgrimage to Disneyland. Nice songs, nice stories, nice decorations, nice rides, and it's fun while it lasts. But at some point it falls apart, not sustainable. 
And in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul is reminding the Galatian believers, we don't need to live this way anymore. This is what the Lord saved you out of. The spirit and the work that we so desperately need in our lives to make our lives right with God. God in love has already given you in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have it. Use it. Live by it. Celebrate it. Share it. And don't get sucked in by what everybody else in the world says about how you need more. Trust in the Lord and his salvation. Not in the foolishness of this world. And that brings us to our first point this morning. The Christmas spirit God gives is the spirit of the incarnate Christ. The Christmas spirit that God gives is the spirit of the incarnate Christ. One of the foundational truths of God's word is that the greatest gift of all, the gift we need the most, is God's gift of his holy and eternal son, Jesus Christ. Is it enough? Well, the Lord says it's more than enough, not just for your salvation, but the entirety of your life. It's good enough for your family. It's good enough for your marriage. It's good enough for your work. It is good enough for every aspect of your life until Christ comes again. And by definition, a gift is what we cannot earn, pay, or get for ourselves. A gift is what must be given. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he what? Made us do A, B, C, D, and E so that we could be right with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the clear testimony of God's word is that the presence of God's holy and eternal son, Jesus Christ, in our world, in our lives, in our hearts, and in our church is not because you and I made a good choice. Let me get all the books and all the world religions. Let me read them all and let me decide this one is the best. I decided Christianity is the best. I'm going to follow Jesus. It's not the testimony of God's word. As Paul later points out, we're known by God because he first knew us. We're, we love God because he first loved us. Here is love while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. We're not here and Christ is not present in our lives because we made good choices and decisions for ourselves like we were shopping for a toy or a car. The testimony of Galatians 4 is that Christ's presence in our world and our hearts begins with his advent or incarnation 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And this advent or incarnation is entirely a gift and work of the triune God of the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct yet equal persons existing and working together in eternal unity as one holy God. Now, as you walk through this passage, the Apostle Paul walks through each role of the Trinity. 
God the Father sending, God the Son coming, and God the Spirit bringing to completion God's work of salvation in our lives. Why does he do that? He's showing us the fullness of God's amazing work of salvation. And it's all God. This is a work of the entirety of the Godhead in an expression of love and grace to save sinners like you and I. That's what it took. And the point that the Apostle Paul comes as he shows us this is, hey, don't think you're adding to your salvation. Don't think, hey, I've got a share or partnership. I did this or taking credit. That's why he says, I'll boast only in the cross. Brothers and sisters, so often, as people are challenged in ministry, the words I hear is, wow, I just feel inadequate. I feel inadequate. And I say to the brothers who say this to me, God, you are inadequate, and so am I. You're inadequate to be a husband. You're inadequate to be a father. You're inadequate to be a shepherd. You're inadequate to be a servant of Christ. What makes you adequate is a God who loved you, a God who sent his son to die for you, a son who came to take your place on the cross, and a spirit who lives and works in you. Your adequacy is from the cross. Your adequacy is from Christ. And the sooner we realize that, the freer and more joyful we will be. We will not spend our time licking our wounds and focusing on our inadequacies. Instead, we will celebrate much God has given us. How much God has given us. You know, I've been reading this book about a veteran Marine who served in the Pacific War. And he talked about how when Marines came back from the Pacific War, they would actually send letters to their buddies and talk about how discouraged they were when they came back to America and how some of them were actually thinking about re-enlisting going back to the Pacific, which was an absolute nightmare. And the soldiers who were there, who were in the middle of mud and dead bodies and just horrific things, could not understand why their comrades would come back, want to come back. But they talked about how they missed the fellowship with like-minded men, and how when they came back to America, how they were amazed that people were complaining about standing in lines for a bus, about waiting to get perhaps a TV set, about all the inconveniences and small things that they had to wait for in America. And they said, we can't relate to these people anymore. They have so much, and yet they are so discontent. And the Apostle Paul here is pointing us, as he points to us the greatness of the gift, he's saying, look, instead of coming and focusing like the world on everything you don't have, I want you to stop and consider, as a child of God, what you do have and the cost that it took for this to be yours. And 
the focal point of this and of the Apostle Paul is the incarnation. What do we mean by the incarnation? The incarnation is simply a term that's used to describe Jesus' birth. But for theologians, it's a reference or it's a definition that shows us that the eternal Son of God gave up his privilege and glory in order to be perfectly obedient to the Father and in coming and being born of a woman and born under the law without losing any of his deity, he took on the fullness of our humanity. Why did he do this? In God's sovereignty, this was part of his plan of what was needed to save you and I. When we talk about sovereignty, we are talking about God's infinite and supreme rule and authority over all space, time, and matter. So that when Jesus came and he was born, he was born at the exact nanosecond that God the Father had preordained and predetermined. The circumstance, the situation, none of it by accident. And this incarnation, it is a divine work of the Trinity. How did Jesus arrive as an embryo, as a fetus, as a newborn babe in a manger in Bethlehem? It is entirely a work of God. It is entirely a gift of God. And it's here, brothers and sisters, to remind us the lengths that God will go to to love those he is called to be his children. Have a look at Matthew 1.18. Matthew 1.18. And as we walk through the Christmas story in the Incarnation, part of the story of Christmas is the way in which God's Holy Spirit is given to us in and through Christ's birth. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be child from what? The Holy Spirit. Now, move forward, if you would, to Luke chapter 1, and we'll read verses 30 through 35. Luke 1, 30 through 35. And the angel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? since I am a virgin. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called what? Holy, the Son of God. 
Brothers and sisters, the good news of God's word, the good news of Christmas that we celebrate, is that the spirit that God gives and the spirit that works and the spirit that accomplishes our salvation is a spirit who is infinitely greater than jingle bells. And in Galatians 4, 6, the Apostle Paul points out, this is the same spirit that God has given each and every child of God. This is the spirit who fills God's children with his life and his love. This is the spirit of the incarnation. And brothers and sisters, as you look at the incarnation, you see God showing us how he works. He's putting the life of Christ inside Mary. And it starts as an embryo, and then a fetus, and then a baby. And it totally changes Mary's life and Joseph's life. And this is the way it works, brothers and sisters, in our lives when we're saved. God saves us and he fills us with the Spirit of Christ. And Christ dwells in us by his Spirit. And it starts maybe small, but it grows as a fetus and a baby should. And it turns our life upside down. And we can no longer live the same way we did before that child came into our lives. And it is a gift of love. Is it hard? Yes. Are there things that are different? Absolutely. Are there things we have to let go of completely? But as time goes on, that gift of that love and that life in our lives far outweighs anything that we have lost or left behind. Brothers and sisters, this is what we celebrate at Christmas time. And this brings us to our second point this morning the Christmas spirit God gives is his spirit of redemption and adoption in Christ. The Christmas spirit God gives is his spirit of redemption and adoption in Christ. As you go through the scriptures in the Old Testament and the Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach, and in the New Testament, it's pneuma. And these are terms whose sound convey their basic meaning. The idea of movement of air, of breath, of life, an invisible power or energy that creates visible movement and life. From a baby's first breath to a hurricane. And what the Lord God progressively reveals from Genesis through Revelation. And he does so most fully in the incarnation and the advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that together the Father and the Son share a ruach, a spirit, who is holy, who is set apart and belongs exclusively to God. And this Holy Spirit is not some invisible life force. It's not a yang or a yang. It's not a chakra. It's not a Star Wars movie where there's this balance of good force and bad force. This Holy Spirit is, in fact, a distinct person who is both equal and one with God the Father and God the Spirit. And Scripture refers to the Holy Spirit as a person who speaks, 
who counsels, who bears witness, who loves, who grieves, who rejoices, who moves and works and fulfills God's will in perfect unity with the Father and Son. And from Genesis to Revelation, the specific way God gives of himself to his creation, the specific way God gives his life and his love, is always by giving his spirit and his word. Genesis 1, 2, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And it's after that that God speaks. Let there be light, and there was light, and all of creation comes into existence. And in Samuel, 2 Samuel 23, 2, King David says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Sinclair Ferguson points out in his book on the Holy Spirit, Anthony, are you here? You have that special book we gave you. I hope you've read it. Sinclair Ferguson points out, he says the Spirit's unique role in the Trinity is to order and complete what has been willed and decreed by God the Father. How? By sharing God's holy love and life and word in creation. How is order brought in? It's through the spirit and word of God. And that order that comes is an expression of God's life and his love. Now in the world, when you fall in love, your life becomes a mess, right? Everything's turned upside down, right? Can't think straight, right? Waiting for all those magic moments, highs and lows. But the holy love of God is different. And as we look at God's life and love, what it does is it brings order. It brings unity. It brings peace. It brings gentleness. It brings kindness. It brings generosity and goodness. It brings in self-sacrifice. It brings us to the place that we're supposed to be. And we see this in a mother's love for her child, right? A mother's love for her child. Is it always yes, yes, yes? And is it filled with candy and gifts and all of these things? And then eventually it becomes chaos? No, there's a completeness to a mother's love as a mother loves and nurtures her child. And over time, if it is a good and holy love, we see an order, a completeness, a peace, a safety, a reassurance that comes with that child that also involves discipline. And over time, that child knows I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm standing in my mother's love. And we see this is how the Spirit of God works, always. And so we see through the history of Israel, as God puts his anointing and his spirit on the leaders of Israel, the prophets, priests, and kings, King David, Moses, Joshua, as they lead the children of Israel through, they bring them to a place where God's will and his word in their lives, his love in their lives is brought to a place of completion and order. They're brought into the promised land by the leading of the spirit, and they're brought in in a way that protects them and watches over them and covers them with the righteousness of God. But where do we see this, brothers and sisters, most fully? 
Well, we see a warm-up in the tabernacle in the temple. God's love, the presence of his life and love, and the Shekinah glory as the Spirit resides in the Holy of Holies. But the greatest display, brothers and sisters, isn't a baby born in a manger who will grow to be a man filled with God's truth and grace and who will die on a cross as the full display of God's love and life that brings order where there is only chaos and evil. And brothers and sisters, we have a taste of this a little bit. We as creatures who are created in God's image, we are, because of our sin, broken analogs and reflection of this God. And so we know in our own lives, how do we share love with one another? How do we share intimacy with one another? How do we draw close? And how are we brought to a place of unity? Well, it is not without an exchange of our spirit and our words, right? You show me the marriage where nobody speaks or shares of their spirit or their heart. I'll show you a disaster on its way, right? And we see that the way God loves and the way he calls us to love is demonstrated and given through his spirit. And this is what the Apostle Paul shows us in verse 5. Why does God the Father send forth his Son to be born of woman and born under the law? Verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This idea of redemption in Scripture refers to paying the price for a slave's freedom or to purchase someone out of prison. This is what God sent his son to do. And this is what God the Son in perfect love and obedience to his Father did for us. But the Apostle Paul explains in Galatians 1.4, this is an incredible act of love. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. He came and he gave his perfect life and love to pay the price for our sin. For what reason? Verse 1-4, to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. And then in Galatians 3.13, he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? By becoming a curse for us. F.F. Bruce writes, Christ entered into the prison house where his people were held in bondage so as to set them free. And of course, that raises the question, free for what? Free to say and do whatever we want? Free to be American and have freedom of speech to say whatever ugly things we want to say without being prosecuted? No, verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christmas and the Christmas spirit is about God's son becoming a man like us so that by God's spirit and his grace, we might become sons of God like him. What does a Christian look like, brothers and sisters? looks like Jesus. It looks like a son of God. Why? Because to every child of God, 
He freely gives his spirit and his word to fill our hearts with his life and his love. And how does this come about? Well, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. A supernatural work, crying, Abba, Father. And you know well, that word Abba is the Aramaic for Papa or Daddy. It's a phrase of intimacy that a beloved child, a child who is not afraid of its father, is able to express at any time or any moment. Brothers and sisters, it's one thing to be legally adopted. It's another to know a father's love. And in Christ, by the power and presence of his spirit, God gives us both. He gives us the status of sons, our justification. You belong to me. But he also gives us a spirit that enables us to know him as a heavenly father who loves his children sacrificially and perfectly. Brothers and sisters, this is the way slaves of sin become new creations in Christ and become beloved sons and heirs of God. It's not through our work. It's through God's gift of his son and the gift of his son's spirit, the spirit of redemption, the spirit of adoption in Christ. And how do we receive this gift, brothers and sisters? Well, Paul, through Galatians from beginning to end, he shows us it's by faith, it's by faith, it's by faith, it's by faith. This is God's gift. He's labored to show us, look, this is God's work. This is God's gift. That means you can't earn it. You can't buy it. God must give it. And he has said in his word, he will give to all men if by faith. They turn from their sin and instead place their hope and confidence not in their works, their life, their righteousness, but instead their hope, their faith, their confidence is in God's perfect love, God's perfect work, God's perfect Son, and God's perfect Spirit. And here we see, brothers and sisters, the assurance of our salvation. So often believers struggle. Am I saved? Am I, what's my right standing? And we live in this way because you are like Hollywood. They say in Hollywood, you're only as good as your last film. Your last film was a bomb, you're a bomb. If your last film was a success, you're a success. But here God shows us the assurance of salvation is the presence of his spirit and his word. What has God said in his word? My son's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for all your sins, past, present, and future. What is the testimony of God's spirit? The spirit of a love for God more than the things of this world. And we see so often people want that assurance. Am I a member of the church? Is it written down somewhere? Is there a profession? Did I do A, B, C, D, and E? Well, brothers and sisters, the assurance of salvation is the assurance of sonship. Do you have God's spirit? Is there a spirit of love where the love for God is greater than the things of this world? 
is that the testimony and confidence that God's promise is true, that the sacrifice of his son is far greater than the sum of all my sin. In the ancient Near East, kings would wear a ring, and that ring was a symbol and sign of their authority and power. And those rings frequently were used as stamps or seals on royal documents, and they would use that royal ring to put the stamp and mark of the king, and that let everybody know that whatever received that stamp and whatever received that mark belonged to the king and came from the king. And the Apostle Paul later in Ephesians explains this is what the Holy Spirit, his spirit of sonship in your heart and life is. It is the seal, it is the stamp, it is the mark that you belong to God. And this is why the Lord has given this spirit in our hearts. And he's done it in port, a spirit of love, a love for God, a love for Christ, a love for his word in our hearts. It is the proof, a love from above, that you are stamped and you are marked and you have the image of God in you. And then in the ancient Near East, if a child, or in the Roman Empire, if a child was adopted, if the father deemed that this son would become his heir, when that child came of age, he would give him a ring like his ring, with the same stamp and the same mark of the father, so that he would be known by everybody who saw he wears that ring. This is not just any son. This is not an illegitimate son. This is not a son the father doesn't like. This is a son who the father has chosen will be his heir. He shares his authority and power and name. He belongs to him. Here the apostle Paul points out, this is what the Lord has given you. This brings us to our final point for this morning. The Christmas spirit God gives is the spirit of faith working through love in Christ. The Christmas spirit God gives is the spirit of faith working through love in Christ. I read a blog recently from Scientific American, and it was explaining what the Christmas spirit is. It said the Christmas spirit is a collective force that comes from people buying into a tradition that calls for generosity, kindness, and charity during the cold, dark winter months. We get lonely, we get sad, so we pitch in together and we get some Christmas spirit. We watch some Christmas shows, we buy some Christmas gifts, and the greater the buy-in, the greater the Christmas spirit. Because, quote, after all, we are the sum of the individuals around us. What a pathetic, pathetic, pathetic depiction of life. We are the sum of the individuals around us. That means, brothers and sisters, whatever you see on TikTok, whatever you see on the social media, whatever your friends tell you, that's what you are. And if they say you're good, great. And if they say you're bad, look out for you. 
And isn't that the life of all the celebrities who we follow? And we see in this way Christmas becomes a holiday pep rally. It's our best efforts to be something for a few weeks of the year that we find it impossible to be for the rest of the year. Generous, kind, joyful. Well, at least we can do it for a couple of weeks a year, right? And sadly, brothers and sisters, this is how many people try to live the Christian life. Show up on Sunday, show up a few times, sing the song, serve, do this, that, and the other. And while we're doing it, we feel pretty good. And we hold it together. And then when it's gone, it all falls apart. And the Apostle Paul here in Galatians is coming and he's trying to both encourage but also to call the Galatians to repentance. He's pointing out, look, that's the spirit of the world. That's the spirit of a slave. The spirit of a slave is you're working like a dog all the time for everything that you eat and everything that you have, and you are constantly living in fear that your work is never going to be good enough, and at some point you're going to get booted out of the door when you're too old to be able to hold it together. Just like the Golden State Warriors, right? They just get paid a little bit more. And the Apostle Paul is coming here and he's saying, look at what God has done. Look at how much he has loved you. Look at how much it has cost him. It has cost him his son. It has cost him his life and his love. He has given you everything. You are no longer a slave. You are a son. Why then are you going back and trying to live like a slave? where your sense of adequacy or inadequacy is based on your performance and your works and all the religious things that you do. Went to seminary, preached a sermon, was loved by these people, had a podcast. And brothers and sisters, we see how that invades just about every aspect of our lives. Mothers, how much pressure do you feel when you see all the blogs and Instagrams of how well all the other mothers are doing? Or you hear from other mothers what you should be doing? We have a righteousness and a justification that's built on our performance. And the Apostle Paul comes and says, look, get it right side up. God has given you the spirit of a son. It cost him the life of his son. And so then he goes on and says, look, this spirit that you have, remember how you received this spirit. How did you receive this spirit for those who were truly saved? Well, he points out, you received it through faith by hearing the gospel. In Thessalonians, he points out how they left their gods when they heard the gospel to place their faith in Christ. And their faith became known throughout the Roman Empire. And he reminds them in Ephesians, and he goes through in Romans, in each aspect he goes through, God has given you this gift freely. You didn't earn it. What you did is you received it by faith. So why then now are you switching gears? So first, brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves, number one, do you have this spirit? Is your salvation 
and your assurance of being a Christian based on being a church member or a profession of faith or you showed up here and there? Or is it a faith that has received the fullness of God's salvation and the gift of his Holy Spirit that gives you a new heart and gives you a love for God and the things of his word, a love for the gospel and a love for the people? And a good test is, do you love the Lord and his word and his people more than you love the things of the world? That gives you a good idea. And if that is indeed the case, brothers and sisters, then the Apostle Paul goes on and he makes the point, then you need to celebrate. Because you are a son of the Most High God. And that sonship with God's stamp and his seal is a salvation that no man can take away. You have an adequacy, a hope, a righteousness that comes from Christ, not you and your works. And then he goes on to say, you need to stand firm in this. And how do you stand firm? Well, look at how the Spirit of God works. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of faith working through love in Christ. And he points out, you are to intentionally not be self-absorbed and worrying about yourselves and how good you are before the Lord. You need to follow the Spirit and the Word. You need to follow Christ's example. You need to be intentional about loving others rather than focusing on yourself. And then he goes on and points out, well, until Christ comes, there is continually going to be a battle with the flesh from the outside and the inside where there is going to be continual pressure for you to live like a slave of the world. And Paul says, don't do it. How do you not do it? Points out, if we live by the Spirit, if we walk by the Spirit, which is simply walking by obedience to the Word of God, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, self-control, gentleness, when he refers to them as fruit, brothers and sisters, he shows that it takes time to grow in our lives. It's not this charismatic zap where I come and say yes, and then tomorrow suddenly I'm. It's a consistent step by step by step as a child grows in his father's love and over time and years begins to exemplify in many soft, and many hard ways, the evidence that this is a child who is loved by his father. Brothers and sisters, if you are indeed a child of God, you have all of God's love. This is what Christmas is about. And the challenge for us, brothers and sisters, is to cherish, to treasure, to celebrate and share. Not the spirit of this world, but the Christmas spirit that God gives in Christ. The spirit of a father's perfect love for his children. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what you have done for us, we of all people are blessed. Would we this Christmas not succumb O oh Lord, to a second-class experience, but as, instead as your children, would we of all people celebrate with joy?
the greatness of a perfect love from a perfect Father by a perfect Spirit and a perfect Son. What you have done to come into our world and our lives to bring us into your family and fellowship from above. In your name we pray, amen.